0: Hello and welcome to another edition of Across the States. I'm your host, Matt Fisher, bringing you the premier state policy podcast. On today's episode, you'll be listening to a discussion between Nino Marchese, Director of the Criminal Justice and Civil Justice Task Forces at ALEC, with State Representative John Andrews of Maine, and Dan Greenberg, Senior Attorney for the Competitive Enterprise Institute, concerning civil asset forfeiture and its impact on public policy, legal rights, and more. Let's now go to their discussion from last Friday. We hope you enjoy.
1: Welcome, everybody. We're super excited to have you here, and we're excited to have both of our guests with us. Go ahead and kick off the call with their introductions. Uh, first, we have Representative John Andrews, who's a member of the Maine House of Representatives. He represents District 73 and has held this office since 2018. He's a member of the Libertarian Party of Maine and has had several led several legislative initiatives to strengthen individual protections against. Civil seizure and forfeiture in recent years. Most recently, he was the original co sponsor of HP 1125, an act to strengthen protections against civil asset forfeiture. This bill has significant bipartisan support and effectively abolished civil asset forfeiture in the state of Maine earlier this summer. Representative Andrews is also an ALEC member. And our other guest is Mr. Dan Greenberg. He's a senior attorney at the Competitive Enterprise Institute and the President of America's Federalism Project, which coordinates and produces studies that rank and compare states on uh, such varying topics as occupational regulation, civil justice reform, and civil asset forfeiture and seizure. Dan was the Senior Policy Advisor at the U.S. Department of Labor from 2017 to 2021, and is also a former state legislator himself, having served in the Arkansas House of Representatives from 2007 to 2011. Dan is also a former ALEC member. And part of the reason why we put this policy hour together for everybody is because he recently published his first report at CEI covering the issue of civil asset forfeiture titled, They're Taking My Stuff, What You Need to Know About Caesar and Forfeiture. So thank you both, Dan and Representative Andrews, for joining us. Uh, I guess the best way to kick off this call is to just kind of lay the foundation for what it is we're talking about. Dan, could you let our audience know what exactly civil forfeiture is and how it came to be and kind of how it's changed over time and got us where we're at today? Well, civil forfeiture is the the outcome of the
2: process that allows law enforcement officers to take property based only on the suspicion that the property owner has done something wrong, based only on the suspicion that there's been some sort of criminal conduct by the property owner. That's seizure when law enforcement officers take it. Forfeiture takes place when judges decide who's ultimately going to get assigned the property rights to that particular piece of seized property. So, for instance, a, a law enforcement officer might seize cash that uh, he or she suspects is the uh, proceeds of uh, some sort of criminal enterprise. A law enforcement officer might seize a car that he or she suspects is being driven by someone who's is intoxicated. By and large, it's cops who are involved in seizure and courts and judges who are involved in forfeiture. And we're talking about big money, billions of dollars every year. The big difference between uh, civil forfeiture and just about every other kind of legal proceeding is that every other kind of legal proceeding, you actually have to have a finding by a judge that proves that somebody's committed a crime or that somebody's broken the law. And what's required for seizure and forfeiture is basically just suspicion. Now, civil forfeiture has its roots in what's called admiralty law, which is the law of the sea, uh, the law of boats. It has its roots in the urgent need to take action now on property before the property can be moved somewhere else. So originally, the powers of government to uh, seize and forfeit ships and goods on ships were used regularly. That's kind of the origin of civil seizure and civil forfeiture. That's because ships are, are mobile. They don't have to stay in port. But like many powers of government, Civil seizure and civil forfeiture have grown over time. The war on drugs in the, uh, in the second half of the 20th century certainly contributed to the more uh, aggressive and widespread use of these powers of government. And in particular, civil seizure and civil forfeiture began to be applied more and more, not just to uh, contraband, not just to things like burglars' tools or, or drugs or, or things that it's illegal to possess, but it began to be applied to the proceeds of crime, such as money. And there, of course, you see a danger because there are plenty of people who possess money who haven't done anything wrong who aren't criminals. That's sort of the, the sixty second
1: history of
2: uh, how it started, where it came from, and where we are now. Does that does that speak to your question?
1: Yeah, it does. It does, and these issues exist at both the federal and state levels, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. And you know, I, I have not had the chance to talk to uh, Representative Andrews very much, but you know, it's worth pointing out that. He's really been kind of a hero in this respect in that for the 50 states, there are 50 different systems and there are, I would say, about 46 systems that are, I think, really quite dangerous because there's a large prospect of civil seizure and civil forfeiture being used to take people's stuff who haven't committed a wrongdoing. And because of Representative Andrews, he has added the state of Maine to the list of states where this practice has been really controlled and reformed so that it has much less of a chance of of doing wrong. Adding Maine to the honor roll of states, uh, I believe, Nebraska and North Carolina and New Mexico, those states prohibit forfeiture except in the criminal context, which is to say you're not going to have forfeiture unless the necessity for forfeiture is proven in a criminal trial. You're not going to have forfeiture unless there's been wrongdoing proven beyond a reasonable doubt. So that's four states by and large that I think are doing it right, and 46 states in which the practice
1: of forfeiture is kind of undisciplined, where I think they're doing it wrong. Right, right. Now, since it was, there's only four states that have kind of abolished this, Maine being the most recent this summer, I mean, it sounds like it has a lot of opposition uh, to it, at, or there may be like supporters of civil forfeiture. I mean, obviously law enforcement has an interest in it. Could you explain kind of who's on the pro-civil forfeiture reform side and then who's, who kind of supports the status quo of these civil forfeiture laws? Well, when you start talking
2: about practices that involve taking people's property without ever proving wrongdoing, this is a practice that really does not appeal to most people's sense of fairness. Uh, Very few people like the idea of paying a penalty by losing ownership of their property, even without a trial. Most people are aware that the standard of criminal wrongdoing, uh, standard of criminal guilt in America is guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And so paying that kind of penalty for allegedly criminal actions without ever having a judge or a jury make that determination strikes the average person as basically unfair. Now the difficulty is that there's a large revenue hook with respect to these programs because generally when a state collects taxes, they go into the general fund. But this is often not the case for most civil forfeiture programs. Seized and forfeited monies, or a large portion of them often goes to budgets directly of law enforcement officers and prosecutors' offices and they like it that way. There's a reason they like it that way. It's much easier on law enforcement officers and prosecutors to get the money directly rather than having to go to the legislature to justify budget spending. I mean, I I think just about any legislator who's listening to this call would agree that one of the most important jobs of the legislature is to set priorities and to decide how much money goes to which government office and so forth, And if there's a way to get around that, if there's a way to avoid the standard appropriations process, the government agencies that uh, don't have to go through this kind of review are really going to like that. And so that's a big reason why these kinds of reforms that say essentially law enforcement offices are partially in charge of collecting revenue to fund their own office, that's a big reason why any reforms to these procedures have
1: traditionally been resisted by the law enforcement community. Does that speak to your question? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it, your report touched a lot on that, the different incentive structures behind civil forfeiture and why it's so difficult to kind of fight it and overhaul it. Pivoting to the specifics of your report a little bit, you know, this has been an issue for a while. And this, I believe, is your first report that you put out at CEI. So just curious, what was the motivation for it? Well, I
2: guess the big motivation is these powers are really being abused. And it appears that some jurisdictions have law enforcement priorities that sometimes focus on other things besides crime fighting and public safety. And sometimes there are organizations, law enforcement organizations, that seem to place a heavy emphasis on revenue generation. And we wanted to write a report that speaks both to policymakers and to the general public. What I want to do is urge policymakers to view law enforcement as a regular budget item, in the same way that they view all other government offices as regular budget items because I generally think that as a matter of constitutional government, every government office ought to go through the regular appropriations process. I I would think that that ought to be uncontroversial for any lawmaker who listens to this. And we also wanted to explain to the public essentially how to protect your own property, because there are plenty of accounts that suggest that someone who's pulled over and someone who who just doesn't look right uh, is in danger of having their cash seized by law enforcement authorities, even if it's a very small amount. And my my tentative conclusions, here we're going to get into the second report that I'm writing right now, but my tentative conclusion is that the median or typical cash seizure is in the three digits. It's under a $1,000, around $900 in in many cases, in many jurisdictions. That means that half of cash seizures are less than this uh, $900 or $1,000 amount. And so it's not the case You know, we often hear these sort of stereotypical accounts of seizures, uh, which is to say, the law enforcement officer opens the trunk and sees, you know, three hundred thousand dollars in in some sort of uh, shrink wrapped uh, container. You know, and and pretty obviously, most people who are carrying around uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars are up to something unusual. This is not the case for someone who's carrying five hundred dollars or thousand dollars. There are legitimate reasons for people to carry that amount of cash around, and yet that sort of cash is often the subject
1: of seizure and forfeiture. Yeah, I, I think your report mentioned that the median uh, cash flow for level was just over $1,200.
2: Yes, and uh, so I'm, I'm currently involved in an effort at looking at public records across a number of different states. And, and as you can imagine, the median differs from state to state. But I think in some cases, it's uh, very low four digits. And in some cases, it's, uh, it's very high three digits. But it's certainly the case that uh, there are many, many seizures that are not this sort of stereotypical six-figure amount. So I, I think that we need to think very carefully about whether people should be punished for carrying around $500 or $1,000 because in practice, sometimes in America today, they are.
1: Right, right. And that was a part of your report at the very beginning where you talked about the median level and how, how frequent uh, this happens to people. And to me, that kind of got me thinking, well, it doesn't sound like anybody who's a victim of, you know, civil seizure would be motivated to go fight for their property, uh, given the lack of protections that they have uh, for such a low amount, given the court costs and all that. This is an initial thought I had. And then later in the report, you dive exactly into that. Could you talk a little more, more about the incentive structures around yes. how, this, how this works and, and beyond the initial constitutional issues with civil seizure, the bigger parts of the litigation process? Yeah, so I,
2: I think that there are, there are several reasons why We've already touched on some of them, but I think that there are several reasons that uh, civil forfeiture, as it's practiced today, raises serious concerns about fairness or comportment with due process of law. And of course, we've already talked about what I guess what I think of as, as the biggest one, which is you're paying a price just for carrying around your own property, and you never face any proven allegation or wrongdoing. Now, again, relatedly to this issue of small sizes of forfeitures, my tentative research suggests that about 80 or 90% of victims of cash seizure never show up in court to contest the, uh, the confiscation of their property. And as you know, if you don't show up in court, you automatically lose. And I've heard advocates of forfeiture, people who like the system the way it is, argue, well, you know, the reason that these people don't show up in court is because they know they're in the wrong and everybody knows that these people are in the wrong. And so there's really no reason for them ever to go into court. And I have a different explanation of this which I'd be happy to discuss if there's time. But the bottom line here is that 80 or 90% of parties never even show up in court. And so there's a major fairness and access to justice problem. And just to add on to that, if I have a minute or two more, the big problem here is that if you suddenly find that you're the victim of say a $1,000 forfeiture, it's certainly within your rights to go to a lawyer and say, look, I need you to represent me so I can get my money back. It's quite likely that the lawyer will say, I'd be happy to represent you. I'd be pleased to represent you my fee is going to be $2,500. So you're going to be in the position of having to pay somebody $2,500 to get your $1,000 cash back. You know, It's not like we have loser pays, right? It's not like we have fee shifting. So you're just going to go into the hole for a lot of money to get a little bit of money back. So it's really kind of irrational in many cases for someone to pursue the loss that they've faced because of forfeiture. Now, if we had a situation where the typical loss from forfeiture is $50,000 or $100,000, it makes a lot of sense to pay a lawyer $2,500 to get your stuff back. But if we have this epidemic of small forfeitures, you know, three-figure forfeitures or whatever, as as we've discussed before, then you can understand why there's a major access to justice problem. That's a whole different problem of, of fairness. And you can understand why most people are just not willing to show up in court and they're willing to accept a default judgment.
1: Right. Yeah. That seems like a huge barrier you know, for people that are wrongly targeted by these laws to access their property again. For those few that actually do go through with that process and go to court, I think you mentioned in your report, that's kind of where the problems just kind of start is everything before that. Once they actually get in the courtroom and start fighting, it's kind of a, a different game because it's an, it's a civil issue it's not criminal. Could you explain the differences between that once they're actually in the courtroom litigating the difference between criminal forfeiture and, and civil forfeiture and how that plays out?
2: Well, that's probably, I mean, I could probably spend a whole hour on that, but I will I will name one really big difference. There's a huge structural difference between the criminal forfeiture process that uh, Representative Andrews has set up and the civil forfeiture process that's true in most states. There's going to be a huge difference in outcomes in these in these two things because The structural difference is that the criminal forfeiture system uh, that we have now in in four states, the system that requires a finding of criminal guilt in, in the procedure, you're lumping everything together. You're lumping both the finding of criminal guilt by the person and the seizure and forfeiture of the property. You're lumping that into one procedure. So in that procedure and in all procedures that establish guilt, everybody who watches cop shows knows that if you cannot afford an attorney one will be provided for you, right? That's that's the Miranda warning that you get read once, once, once you get arrested. So you never have this 80% default judgment problem because everybody gets their day in court because if you can't afford an attorney, one will be supplied for you. The innocent person is guaranteed representation. So the innocent person is going to get to keep his or her property. Once you have this uh, unified and condensed and combined procedure that settles everything in one procedure, the innocent person is going to get to keep his
1: or her property. It's interesting. I want to read an excerpt from your report, which is your own excerpt from a top prosecutor arguing in favor of civil forfeiture. Quote, prosecutors choose civil forfeiture not because of the standard of proof, but because it is often the only way to confiscate the instrumentalities of crime. The alternative criminal forfeiture requires a criminal trial and conviction. Without civil forfeiture, we could not confiscate the assets of drug cartels whose leaders remain beyond the reach of the United States extradition laws, and who cannot be brought to trial. Moreover, criminal forfeiture reaches only a defendant's own property. Without civil forfeiture, an airplane used to smuggle drugs could not be seized, even if the pilot was arrested, because the pilot invariably is not the owner of the plane. Nor could a law enforcement agency's confiscate cash carried by a drug porter who doesn't own it, or a building turned into a crack house by tenants with knowing approval of the landlord. So to me, it seems like they fully understand everything you just laid out about the differences in criminal civil uh, procedure, and that's why they like it. It seems that's, that's why they like the way the laws are written because the protections that the individual has in court of law are not as strong. Right. Like, like,
2: like all of us, prosecutors would prefer to do work that is easy rather than work that is hard. And there is no question that it's going to be considerably more difficult to prove criminal wrongdoing in a, in a criminal process than it is basically just to almost assume someone's guilt and have suspicion serve as sufficient evidence of guilt In a civil process. And so it makes sense that people are going to be looking to do less work than more work. And it's much more difficult to, to, you know, in, in these cases that you were talking about from that excerpt, it is more difficult to prove a conspiracy, right, between two people than it is simply to seize the property that's in someone's possession based merely on suspicion. Now, the retort to that, right, the retort to that from my perspective is that there's a reason that you want to have. Protection of people's property based on this guilty beyond a reasonable doubt rule, which is that property is very important and people deserve strong protections for property rights. And that's why you want to take very seriously this idea that guilt needs to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. And so you're going to have, you know, when you have the system that's been successfully passed by Representative Andrews and in three other states, you're going to have a much better system of protecting people's property.
1: Right. Speaking of Representative Andrews' success, I'd like to switch gears a little bit. Um, kind of zoom in on Maine. Representative Andrews, could you tell us a little bit about your experience with civil asset forfeiture, this issue at large, prior to the passage of HP 1125, and then how you became the original co-sponsor of that bill?
3: Certainly. Uh, Thank you for the kind words, Dan. I have to give full credit to uh, Representative Billy Bob Falkingham, whose bill it was. He was the tip of the spirit for this effort. And uh, another shout out to Lee McGrath and the Institute for Justice, who was an absolute ace in the uh, committee work, helping us get this passed. Previous to to this this bill being enacted, Maine had D's and F's in most of the the report cards from IJ. That was in a large part the catalyst of of what people on the more conservative side wanted to do to fix this. Early on in session, I'd been contacted by some prominent Democrats who had interests in criminal justice reform. This was one of the kind of a trifecta we worked on. We were able to get rid of no-knock warrants in Maine, and we tried to rein in our fusion center. Uh, That didn't go quite as well, but we're betting two for three at least. Uh, The process for this, like I said, having Lee as an expert in the committee to kind of talk about the technicalities, because it was in judiciary where most of the uh, the members of that committee were lawyers, he could speak their language and kind of break it down through the statutes, was incredibly helpful. And once we got to the floor, this, uh, this passed the Senate, unfortunately, our first try in the House, uh, they moved the majority on not to pass, and luckily that failed, so we had to come back and move the minority, which was a pretty awesome moment for those of us who had worked on it. It was late at
1: night, and we actually got it through. Fantastic. And I understand that uh, this wasn't the first bill that you introduced on the issue. There was at least one other. Talk a little bit about how those differed from this bill.
3: certainly. Certainly. The one that we were
1: just speaking about,
3: uh, 1368 which kind of relates to what Dan was talking about with uh, cash seizures, I think in Maine, it's less than $1,300. So that bill would have not allowed for seizure of cash under 100 bucks or a car that is valued under $1,000. The idea about keeping it small is if somebody is arrested and the family car is seized, if it's you know not, done, not that great a shape worth less than $1,000, it could impact the spouse or the children for getting them to work or, or, or to school. That bill, unfortunately, failed, but it was unnecessary seeing as that we moved from civil forfeiture to strictly criminal, which was kind of all encompassing and everything else. The other bill that I put in uh, was in collaboration with IJ again, trying to improve reporting and accountability to kind of improve our, our report card with them. And that was also incorporated into the big bill where now all forfeited property has to be listed publicly on the Department of Public Safety's website. Previous to that, uh, it was kind of hard to find that information. So going forward, we're hoping it's a lot more transparent for the citizens of Maine.
1: Right. And you mentioned shifting the law, rather, from civil forfeiture requirements to criminal forfeiture requirements. I understand that's what you did with (laughs) this bill that passed in June um, 1125. How exactly does that work? How does that eliminate civil asset forfeiture? And why was that the route you chose to this most recent bill?
3: It requires a conviction uh, for involved property to be forfeited. It also prohibits you know, the transfer uh, or referral to a federal agency. And again, it requires the reporting of all seized property uh, publicly
1: on the, the Department of Public Safety's website. Great, great. And it had significant bipartisan support. Uh, From what I can tell in both chambers, did you have any large political obstacles or what what were your biggest issues, if any? Very,
3: very similar to what Dan was talking about. Kind of the the people who are used to the status quo were against it as they usually are. Uh, But it was nice. I, I mean, in politics, everybody loves a good political food fight every now and then. But there are certain issues where left, right and everything in between can agree. And I really found that Last session, criminal justice reform was a big part of that, and common sense stuff like this, you know, don't hurt people, don't take this stuff, has broad appeal to, to people from all walks of life and political persuasions. Well,
1: that's great. And, I mean, at Allett, we, we love seeing you know, bipartisan support on issues like this. I think it was very cool uh, to see that pass in Maine and have you added to the list of states that have uh, abolished these laws to better protect individuals' rights. Uh, Representative Andrews, what would you say state legislators need to know about civil forfeiture issue at large?
3: Uh, and if you're trying to get this, this passed and enacted in your state, I would definitely get in contact with an expert like Dan or uh, Lee McGrath at IJ, who's very accessible, very helpful. Uh, I found that having them in our corner to kind of really understand the issue on a technical level went a long way with convincing people who, like I said previously, are lawyers. If they're on judiciary, usually they are. And again, finding that, that sweet spot in the Venn diagram where you have crossover appeal for issues. Talk to Democrats. I mean, people are people. Talk to them like they're people. Say, I really, I'm really, really passionate about this. How do you feel about it? Can we work together and, and build out from there? You know, you have to build those relationships. Be honest, transparent, and, you know, work towards doing the right
1: thing, and hopefully it'll work out on the floor. And, Dan, I pass the same question to you. Specifically, you know, so the last forfeiture in the States. What specific issues do you think state legislators need to know about this?
2: So I would make a couple of points. I think uh, one of the aspects of this that state legislators would be particularly interested in is from a sort of budget and revenue perspective, the way that uh, the funding of civil seizure and civil forfeiture works, of course, is, is very different from uh, the way that uh, funding of government programs normally works. And, you know, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just repeat myself here. These programs operate as essentially kind of a second system of taxation where cops and prosecutors and other people in the law enforcement agencies take this money themselves and put significant portions of it in their own budget without ever undergoing meaningful budget review. And so I would think that state legislators ought to be very interested in the idea that, uh, you know, I mean, as as I recall, back, back when I was a state legislator, it was very important to me. I thought, One of my chief jobs was to essentially set budget parties, to write a budget for the year, and to uh, make sure that each agency got the appropriate amount of funding. If you have this second alternate system of quasi taxation, where law enforcement agencies get to determine how much money they're taking in, how much attention they're going to be giving to seizure and forfeiture processes, it really induces kind of a bias in the system. And there are occasional Uh, scattered cases where it seems like law enforcement agencies are, are really kind of more interested in increasing revenue than in crime fighting and public safety. And so I would think that a really important part of this is focusing on restoring the traditional role of the legislature as the budget decision maker. And that means making sure forfeiture monies and forfeited property go into the general fund or something very much like the general fund rather than just bypassing the general fund and appropriations process such that uh, they go directly to these uh, law enforcement agencies. I guess I would also say, and again, here we're getting into this report that I'm writing now, there are issues that I think forfeiture activists have insufficiently stressed in the past, or perhaps have not stressed quite as much as I'd like them to, having to do with the extremely small size of the typical or median cash forfeiture and the extremely large size of default judgments. And I think that those two issues are related. I I think that if we were to cabin or more tightly regulate the process of forfeiture such that we were really just going after the big guns, so to speak, we'd see solutions to several problems. Because A, we would know that we're not just going after the more likely innocent person is just carrying around $500 or $1,000 cash, $1,000 of cash for legitimate reasons. And we would also know that, uh, you know, when when someone really suffers a gigantic forfeiture, they probably have enough resources, at least to be reasonably represented in court. And so you're not only going to see fewer outrages of the kind that you see when tiny amounts of money get forfeited, but you're also going to see more access to justice. You're going to see, people who you know wh- whether or not they're guilty of something whether or not they're doing wrong i think that you'll see a much higher percentage of people actually able to represent themselves or be be represented by capable counsel in court so it's a, it's it's really those those three things the restoration of the legislative process the extremely small size of the typical or median forfeiture and the alarmingly high rate of default judgments i think that those are issues that really ought to be emphasized. And, and, and perhaps it's true that they have not always been emphasized in the past as much as they should.
3: And to follow up on that, the small size uh, asset forfeiture, or, or seizure rather, that's a lot of paperwork that, that law enforcement doesn't really want to be doing. You know, if, if, we, if they were not to focus on that so much, it would free them up to go after your actual big fish. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. It seems like it's almost a
1: recommendation for, for the state's to address the issues before they become issues, like eliminating the potential for them to, to get as serious as they are by doing those appropriation routes and making sure that the agencies are funded the way they are. Because from that way, you're you know, eliminating that incentive for uh, whether it's prosecutor's office or uh, law enforcement agencies to more or less abuse uh, the laws and seize people's property.
2: I, I agree with that. And perhaps I'm at fault for not saying, I think the, the most important reform We've already discussed this a little bit, of course. But the most important reform is one that uh, Representative Andrews has already helped pass in Maine, which is to change the civil forfeiture process into a criminal forfeiture process, which is better on grounds of uh, judicial economy because instead of a number of different proceedings, you just need to have one proceeding. And I think it's also better in terms of fundamental fairness because it's a better way to make sure that people's property is protected because there's there's a higher standard that you have
1: to meet before you take people's stuff seeing how that is the most, in your opinion, the most successful way to, to go about reforming these laws. Yeah. What would be things that you think state legislators should know to avoid reforms? Let's say maybe uh, they have opposition in their state legislatures um, to shifting totally from you know, the civil standard to the criminal standard and effectively abolishing, uh, but they still want to strengthen individual protections from this. What's a way that they should do that or a way that they shouldn't do that?
2: So I guess I would say I've seen one reform that I think is fairly ineffective, and it's sort of a a weak imitation of the criminal procedure requirement. Some states, or many states, I think, have what's called a criminal conviction requirement. And what that means, it's difficult to generalize because it has slightly different forms in several states, but the idea is, as I understand it, that if the prosecutor can find some event of criminality, some criminal finding... Uh, that has something to do with some action that has taken place by the property owner, some action that has taken place that seems to have some connection with the property, then that's sufficient. That's really very different from the criminal forfeiture requirement that uh, Representative Andrews uh, and his colleagues have taken. So that criminal conviction requirement is a very weak substitute. And I've seen people, in my view, mistakenly claim that, oh, this is going to lead to the end of civil forfeiture. It's going to stop the danger of civil forfeiture. The statistics to my mind, demonstrate that these criminal convictions, criminal conviction requirements, really have little or no effect on the scope and the nature of forfeiture. Although I I think that there are sort of do-gooders who are are interested in uh, creating this reform, it's my judgment and my experience that it has very, very little effect. And so I would be extremely cautious about, about putting any resources into that prospect.
1: Dan, I wanted to give you the opportunity. If there's anything else in your uh, report that you kind of want to dive into or highlight, I know you did a great amount on uh, the uh, litigation issues. Uh, is there any anything specifically that you want to talk about or point to a little more?
2: So, I guess I would just say that uh, you know the the Constitution is not a self-executing document. I think it's very helpful for people to know what their rights are and to uh, exercise their rights. And what I what I tried to do in this report, and particularly in chapter two, is to give people kind of an account of what they're allowed to do and and what they're not allowed to do with respect to uh, dealing with law enforcement officers who want to search them or search their car or take their stuff or something like that. And I think it's very, very important that we allow law enforcement officers to do their job, which is to say, to fight crime. And I also think it's very, very important that we instruct people, we instruct everybody so that the average citizen knows what his or her rights are when dealing with the government, and so I tried to strike a balance between those two things because it's my view that uh, there are many people who have who who often discover you know that uh, they, they have this kind of rough idea you know maybe I'm just not I'm not being treated very fairly when I have to deal with uh, with a law enforcement officer and so I think it's just I think it's a wise idea generally for people to be reasonably well informed about what their rights are and so that's that's the function of that second chapter and i I tried to explain both what's available to you as a driver. You know, if you get pulled over and uh, don't, you don't particularly want want to be searched, you don't particularly want your car to be searched, you don't particularly want to give up your property. But I also tried to explain in the other parts of that report what you can expect if you have to be a litigant, what you can expect if you find that your property's been seized and now you have to undergo this extremely painful and unpleasant proceeding. There was a famous judge whose name doesn't come to mind who once said, "You know, participating in a lawsuit, being a party in a lawsuit is." is the worst thing in the world. And as, as a person who's, who's actually been a participant in a lawsuit, I guess I would have to say uh, that judge was, was not far off. I think that may be judge learned at hand, I'm not sure. What I, what I like to think is if people read that report, they can at least get some idea of what they might have to face.
3: You, you know, this, this can be done. We, we were in a very deep blue legislature in Maine. Our governor is a former prosecutor, district attorney and attorney general. Very pro-law enforcement. Uh, she actually didn't sign the bill, she just let it of go off of her desk and become law without her signature. But it, it can be done no matter the makeup of your, of what your house and
0: Senate look like. Again, just build those partnerships, you know, work out from the center and try and build a coalition to get it done. You have been listening to across the states in our policy discussion between Nino Marchese, Director of the Criminal Justice and Civil Justice Task Forces at Alec, State Representative John Andrews of Maine and Dan Greenberg, Senior Attorney for the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Thank you for joining us for our discussion on civil asset forfeiture for today. And before we go, a special shout out and thanks to our State Legislator of the Month for October 2021, Speaker Roger Hanshaw of West Virginia. Speaker Hanshaw has been instrumental in pushing for House Resolution 25, supporting the signing of a bilateral trade agreement between the United States and Taiwan. Again, Speaker Hanshot is our state legislator of the month for October 2021, and we salute him for his efforts in this area. Thank you again for joining us on Across the States. I'm your host, as always, Matt Fisher, and be sure to join us again next time for more Across
1: the States. Thank you for listening to Across the States, the leading state-focused policy podcast presented by the American Legislative Exchange Council, the premier free market organization of and for legislators. To learn more about our work or to make a tax-deductible donation, visit alec.org. Tell us what you think on Facebook and Twitter at Alex States. The views and opinions expressed on Across the States are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Legislative Exchange Council.